listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastures, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Sensenegg, she, her. Julie Hoke, she, her. Ben White, he, him. And we got quite a show for you. It's exciting. I love doing this. Beth Allison Barr is here. She wrote Making a Biblical Womanhood. Rachel and I get down with her, unpack the whole text. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a lush interview, and I'm excited to share that with you. We're going to end with what's been nourishing our soul, hoping that what's been blessing us can overflow and bless you as well. But I'm excited to say we got direct feedback last week when Ben interviewed me about the Bible from our friend Katie. So we're going to start with talk back. Ben's got something to say about that. Last week being two weeks ago, we release our podcast every fortnight. We love you. Um, Fortnite, good word. <laughs> so, our friend Katie wrote us, and she attends a church that she's not so sure she should attend. And she's kind of on this pendulum swing, going back and forth. Should I be here? Should I not? And she gives us a whole list of, of, of the pros that, that, that um, w- why she should. Um, but what she was responding to in Johnny and my conversation about the Bible from two weeks ago was she described as the relational versus orthodox church. Um, uh, it really helped me, helped give me clarity on why I even bother with this church. I, I missed that the Spirit of God could be so alive and active in us, and that view that the people of the church make the church rather than a top-down approach. And that's the distinction. I think people approach, Johnny was saying this, that the pe- people approach the Bible as this kind of top-down thing. It's a rule book, do what you're told, and it's often used to oppress people, not even just like a moral rule, rule book, but like mm-hmm. a societal rule book to keep marginalized people in their place. Mm-hmm. This kind of top-down thing. And the way that Johnny redeems it personally and how he, how we use it in Circle of Hope and how he encouraged everyone to approach the Bible is in this relational way. Come to the people in the Bible as if they're your friends. Let it let it into your heart. Get it get it below your head, so you're not just having some intellectual argument or some reorganization of um, power structures. Um, not just that, though it does do that. Um, but but start with this kind of relational thing, and that gave that gave Katie a place to 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 be in her church for right now. Even though it has a, a, a verily what she says, um, oppressive lens to, to the Bible, particularly for women in leadership. She calls it a patriarchal church. And she, she says, why am I attending a church that sees the Bible through an oppressive lens? I was down this road that I always go down. I need, the, I need to change. But then when Sunday came and I had my family ready to go back to the liberal church, I remembered, oh, I need to see Alicia to see how things with her exchange student are going. And I bet Randy will be there. And I really want to pray with her since it's the first week of school, etc. So she, she's got these, these real rich relationships, particularly with women in the church, that kind of give her a place to stand, even though that the top she totally disagrees with. Relationships are super powerful. They're how transformation happens. That's what we think in Circle of Hope. Jesus reveals, the best way to reveal Jesus is through a relationship. So we get to know one another by getting to know Jesus. Jesus uh, reorders the whole world by coming into it as a baby and relating to us. And so relationships are at the heart of Christianity. But relationships also change our relationship um, 
to one another and to those we harm. I have had, I've had relationships with people that are harming others and I've had to change those relationships and reduce intimacy in order to love somebody else that I'm relating to. And I think that that is a, that those are this, the, the kind of decisions that we need to make. Um, because my relationships, my relationships with Julie and Rachel, for example, and other women are why it's hard for me to attend a church like Katie's describing. So, like, I'm with you in the pendulum because my relationships swing me one way and swing me in other ways, but Mm. it is through relationships that I've learned, oh, this isn't just ideological. I'm not just coming up with a principle. Mm -hmm. I'm relating to people, and it's changing how I think about the church. And I'm imagining who else could be here and who wouldn't be safe because of my other relationships. And so the relational aspect changes my, uh, it even changes my theology and my understanding of the Bible. And so my encouragement to those out there that are on the pendulum is keep relating and like Jesus, relate to the marginalized and the vulnerable and see if that doesn't change how, how you worship, how you connect. My experience growing up was in a church that did not affirm women in leadership in the church. And it's, it's resonating with me what you're saying, Johnny, because, you know, I had deep, meaningful relationships in that church, you know, family and people who became like family. But because of the environment and the theology that was... Because of the environment and the theology of the church, I, I never imagined myself in leadership in the church. You know, I didn't have any space to even consider that. As, and it was because of connecting to Circle of Hope and the relationships in this community that people began to call me into the gifts that God has given me in new ways. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just I just want to name that, that mm-hmm. uh, I can relate to what Katie's saying in my own life, and I can see from, from where I am now how significant the relationships I had and have in Circle of Hope have, have changed me personally um, and helped me live into, the I think, a more full version of myself. Um, Mm -hmm. as I give the gifts that God has given me to build up the church. Yes. Uh, Julie, I, I am resonating personally with what you're saying so much because that that's been my experience too. I didn't, I didn't have like an ideological call to pastoring. I was in this environment of circle of hope where I, was leading and that that was being affirmed through relationships and and people saying hey you, you know you need to take yourself seriously you're you're doing this um among us and and the holy spirit it was through the holy spirit affirming me personally and through those relationships that this that this journey um continues to come to fruition so i i just want to encourage katie too that it's yes the spirit in the body through relationships uh does wondrous things and we may not know the end of it yeah 
and to all the Katie's out there that are, are working with it, we hope that, that Rachel and Julie are leading you to, um, Katie ends her, her thoughts with saying that she's, she's giving, finding peace with finding spiritual inspiration from multiple sources. And we're really privileged to be a part of, of your life, Katie. And again, all the Katie's out there that hopefully we can be a part of your spiritual inspiration, particularly Rachel and Julie, consider them your pastors. Cause I know you guys love them, right? Thanks, Ben. Right back to us, y'all. Resist and Restore podcast at circleofhope.net. Talk back. It's the best thing. Thanks again for listening to our show. We love having you as part of our family. We want to keep extending the table of our dialogue. So like Ben just said, email us, resistandrestorepodcast at circleofhope.net, and keep connecting with us. Give this podcast a high review wherever you listen to it. So go, like crank it all the way up to whatever it goes to, and then write something nice about us or give us some other kind of feedback if you wish. Further, subscribe to the podcast where you listen to it. These things help others connect to us, and so can you if you just share it with people who are looking for this kind of thing. We're looking for people who are looking for us, and if you know people like that, please share this podcast with them. Go to our website. You can connect with ourselves in our Sunday meetings and also share in our Common Fund, which helps support the show and the church and also changes our relationship to money as well, just in being generous. So go to circleofhope.church to find out how to connect to a cell, how to attend a Sunday meeting, and how to share in our common fund. Thanks so much for listening to us. Dr. Barr, it's so wonderful to be here with you and my fellow pastor, Johnny Rashid. Thank you so much for being here on our show. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Would you start by introducing yourself um, Mm -hmm. to our listeners? Tell us where you live, what you do for a living, how you're feeling today. (laughs) I would love to. Um, I am Beth Allison Barr, and I do hope you will call me Beth on the show. And I'm a professor in Waco, Texas at Baylor University, which is uh, one of the oldest Baptist uh, universities, especially in Texas. And I am also a pastor's wife, so I've been in ministry for uh, 24 years now with my husband. Um, And I recently wrote a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which was sort of my um, final, I I tell people that it was sort of an act of desperation where I sort of was just, something has to change. And um, that that is really why why I wrote the book. Um, In my day job, I am a professor. I teach medieval and women's history. Uh, This semester, I'm teaching a graduate seminar on women's theory and history. And so I was talking with students this morning who were in my class. And then I'm also an associate dean in the graduate school. So I'm over helping graduate students get jobs when they finish their degrees. Wow, that's a lot. Thank (laughs) Thank you for making time for us here. Um, all of our pastors read your book and really enjoyed it, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And for me, it was really personally deeply affirming. Um, it gave words and evidence to truths that I, in my felt experience um, after meeting Jesus, that mm-hmm. the oppression of women um was a political and economic or is a political and economic and social construct, not a divinely ordained one. And 
Um, that's the truly good news of the gospel that you are proclaiming. Yes. And, and I hope the worldwide church keeps waking up to this freedom in Christ. Um, but culturally, culturally, as you said, uh, we're, we're not there yet. So I, I hope right. we, can keep, we can talk about this change here that we want mm-hmm. to see. Um, even as a pastor, I've, I've caught myself kind of justifying needing to justify my calling um, from God in, in motherly and wifely terms Yes, um, to make it safer and more palatable. And, and, you know, that's complicated because those are roles that I, I enjoy and I'm, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for. So I appreciate how you're, you're not, you're not um, seeking to like, uh, take the goodness out of out of those right. relationships, but you are trying to shine light on this truth of our the fullness of our humanity in right. Christ, and, and that God's Spirit has been poured out on all people. And it's time to return to that gospel truth and, and break down the barriers that keep women from from knowing this truth about uh, about who we are and who who God says we are. Yes, um, and and even who the the Bible writers I think were were trying to reveal that we are so that the fullness of God can be known. So I'm just I'm just so excited that you you wrote this book, especially that you you brought out like medieval women have been such an encouragement to me in my journey because I, I you know I too felt like I'm missing. I'm missing all this yes. history in the in the having grown up in the evangelical church, and they they they've been a lifesaver for me. So oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. So Johnny, help us. Help. Would you help us get into the book here with Dr. Barr? Yeah, I'd love yeah. to do that. Thanks again, Beth, for being here. So cool to yeah. have you. You start your book by saying that you didn't intend to become an activist. So how does that change? How do you become an activist? How did the experience, especially of what your husband went through, how did that change your lived experience um, to become, hey, maybe I need to be an activist here? Right, no, that's a very good question. And people who know me, people who grew up with me, um, know that this was a really big thing for me to do because I'm a a behind the scenes type of person. I like to help people behind the scenes. That's one of being a teacher, one of the things is we like to push our students forward and push them out the door to go do things and equip them uh, to be able to do those things. So it's not in my nature to want to be the person on stage and to want to be the person who um, who everyone is asking for interviews. But what I what happened in 2016, the culmination of so many things in my life, including the firing of my husband, including the election of Donald Trump. Um, And I live in the heart of, deep in the heart of of Texas. Uh, So this was a very real, you know, the reality of what the evangelical movement had become was in my face every day. And I suddenly, I had this breaking point where I realized that this isn't gospel, that this is not about Jesus, that this is about American culture, that this is about this hierarchy of oppression that is part of human history, but is not ordained by God. And I suddenly realized that, you know, I've been teaching these women's history classes since 2008. And my students, every semester, my students would ask me the same question. They would say, Dr. Barr, why haven't we heard this before? 
why haven't we heard this before? I mean, I got that question all the time from students. And it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, I know things that most of the church doesn't know. And if they knew these things, maybe it would get them to realize that calling women to be always under the authority and leadership of men is a human practice and not a godly practice. Um, and so that's really what I realized that um, to be an activist, I think, is just sort of realizing that you can do something to help people beyond yourself. Mm. Um, you know, this isn't just about me. This is, in fact, it really isn't about me. If it was just about me, I would have kept my mouth shut um, because I would have never wanted to do the things that I'm doing now. Mm. Uh, but this realization that it is about more than you and that by stepping forward, you can help other people. And in some ways, that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is about taking Jesus, what showing what God has done for us, you know, to those around us. And so I, in some ways, I think all Christians are called to be activists. We just mm. don't really, we just don't, we just don't do it. So that's a little bit helpful for you. Oh, yes. That, that's beautiful. It's, it's not just for ourselves. I think that is the heart of the gospel. You, Beth, you refuse to distinguish between patriarchy and Christian patriarchy. Why, why is that the case? I like the way you asked that, that I refuse to distinguish. People keep asking me to back down on this. They keep asking, they keep saying, well, isn't you know, this servant leadership, which is the term I'm really beginning to hate, I'm starting to have these very negative reactions to people who talk about servant leadership. And I'm like, oh, um, but nonetheless, but they're like, well, isn't this isn't this beautiful? God created these two beautiful people and coming together. You know, they have these different roles and it just, you know, it's this beautiful image. And I'm like, well, I guess it could be beautiful, except for it's not what God called us to do. Um, you know, this sort of saying that there is only one way to be a woman and only one way to be a man, and that in order to be called by God, you have to stay in that lane. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, that's not gospel at all. I mean, there's there's no so and I'm like, I guess you can make it look pretty, but it's not gospel. Um, and patriarchy by, you know, really, you think Shakespeare, patriarchy by any other name is just patriarchy. And patriarchy says that there is something about women, there is something in women's bodies, the way women's bodies are made, that makes them unable to lead. And whether or not you say this is because women's bodies are inferior, whether this is because you say that women's bodies are created for different roles than men, whether, uh, however you define it, it's saying there is something about women that makes them unable to do what men can do. And some people reverse this and they say, well, you know, men can't do things that that women can do. And I'm like, well, yes, on the one hand, the way our bodies are created, there are things that both sexes can't do <laughs> that the other one, I was like, that's not really a, a good argument. But in, when we think about cultural practice, everything a woman can do, a man can do. Uh, now, a man is often demeaned for doing women's things, which also tells us something. Um, but what patriarchy says is that there are some things that men cannot do that women should never do. Mm. because there's something about them that makes them incapable. And that's an ontological argument. Um, and that's what, and people keep missing this. I mean, this is saying there's that God made us less 
in men. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the bottom line. So Christian patriarchy is arguing nothing more than what um, the classical Greek world argued, in which they said that women's bodies were inferior to male bodies. So I'm holding the line that patriarchy is patriarchy. Yeah, I was fascinated that you quote Russell Moore, who explicitly defends patriarchy, and and there's no other way about it. I mean, he 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 says it. I mean, I'm not sure he would use that term now, but the meaning is still there. Um, right. And that is just a, a devastating um, reality. Yeah, you, I wonder. I wonder if Russell Moore would back off on that article now. I've heard him say. He said something recently where he said he really regretted some things he wrote early on in the 2000s. I'm wondering if one of them was this article. I, I wonder about that too. Mm-hmm. You kind of got to some of the kind of Greek origins of Christian patriarchy. Where else mm-hmm. do you think um, Christian <laughs> patriarchy kind of um, got a foothold on the church? Yeah. So, I mean, patriarchy, it's funny um, because one of the arguments that complementarians make is they argue that the divine order of women being under the authority of men is sort of written into creation. And on the one hand, they they sort of are right about this in the sense that it's written into human history. It is there from the very beginning. And this, and it's not, you know, I think this is one of the things too that made me really wake up when I was in graduate school. And I suddenly realized that the way that people in the ancient world um, were referencing women and were and treating women was very similar because I was in this, I was in graduate school at the same time that the um, Southern Baptist Convention was finalizing the Baptist faith and message of 2000. And so, you know, this was a progression that actually started um, in the, in the 80s was when it started. And then its final culmination was the product that we got in 2000. And so all this was going on literally down the street from me where I was in Chapel Hill And it occurred to me that the things that they were arguing on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention were the same things that I was seeing in ancient texts and in the worlds of, you know, India and in Mesopotamia um, and everywhere. And so that, I mean, that was just a hard, that was a really hard fact to face that we did not look any different from the rest of the world. Um, And so what I think if we look at Christian history, you know, and if we even look at the Old Testament, um, and a lot of people have blamed Judaism for the patriarchy that seeps into the church, and this isn't accurate, right? Either Judaism also grew up in a patriarchal world. Um, it evolved in a patriarchal world. So, patriarchy influences Judaism the same way that patriarchy infiltrated Christianity. It's not Judaism's fault. Um, it is this patriarchal world in which we live. Uh, so. What we see, even in the Old Testament, is we see where there are all these patriarchal restrictions on women and all of these, you know, things, you know, the way the treatment of women. But yet at the same time, we still see this thread running through where God is always standing up. I mean, we think about Hagar. I love the story of Hagar because Hagar, she's rejected. She is. I mean, she faces the worst of patriarchy. And God finds her. And says, I'm going to take care of you. And she names God. That's right. I mean, I don't know if people realize that, you know, she's the first person to name God. And that appears in the Bible that a woman names God. Mm-hmm. And she says, you're a God who sees. And, and I just see that thread. God always sees women. Mm-hmm. And 
throughout the whole Old Testament, New Testament, God always sees women and lifts them up. Um, so you asked, where did patriarchy enter the church? I don't think patri- Christianity has ever been separate from patriarchy because Christians are human. Mm. And sin has never been separate from Christianity because, I mean, this is the problem. So on the one hand, it is true that patriarchy is deeply embedded in the Christian tradition and in the Old Testament tradition, because this is who people are. Um, At the same time, though, God has always pushed believers to not follow patriarchal practices has always pushed believers to regard women as different than men. I mean, I'm sorry, to regard women as human, just like men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those two things both coexist. As for our modern church, you know, if we talk about the patriarchy that is we're most familiar with today in American Christianity, it is mostly a construct of the 19th century um, that just kind of infiltrated back in really through the evangelical movement that came from um, Britain to America. Um, And so, you know, evangelicalism, as much as there are things I like about evangelicalism, the focus on the Bible, the focus on Jesus, uh, the the reality is, is that evangelicalism has always been embedded in racism and patriarchy. Mm. And that's very construct. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so hard right now to separate it, because this has always been part of Mm. evangelicalism. So I, that was a broad answer that gave you a few specifics. Do you want me to unpack anything for you? No, we're we're gonna we're gonna get more into okay. the modern evangelicalism yeah. in a bit. I I want to see if we can go back to the early church, Beth, and um, you were starting to touch on how how did how does Paul in particular? How do you yeah. think Paul reorders how we think? of gender hierarchy. And, and I feel a, um, I feel a personal excitement about this. I'm, my ethnic heritage is Italian. And so I'm very familiar with patriarchy um, in that culture. And, and, and that is the, you know, the part of the world where a lot of these early churches got started and, you know, even Paul's letter to the Romans is like something, Something new is happening there that Jesus that Jesus started. Uh, so, right. so how does Paul reorder gender hierarchy? Yes, no, this is, you know, um, I've said this before. When I first decided to write this book, I, I didn't want to talk about Paul because I feel like the arguments have gotten so, um, you know, really ground to a halt in Paul because it's come down to simply, well, I read it this way and I read it this way and there's no middle ground. And I was just like, I'm done with that because the problem is, is that neither side is really taking that full historical context into into account. And when we look at it through history, it you know completely changes it. And so that ultimately is why I decided to include Paul. It was my husband that convinced me. He was like, you've got to show them how this changes Paul before they'll buy anything else you say. And so he, he convinced me of that. Um, and what has happened is that I have, now I get almost daily, I get messages from women that include things like, you made me love Paul again, you know, that um, I always saw Paul as, as, um, you know, somebody I hated, I dreaded reading the epistles, I dreaded hearing sermons on Paul, uh, you know, something I heard all the time, 
And so I'm really thankful for that because what I think Paul was doing, I don't think Paul was a feminist in the sense. I don't think he's actually advocating for women. I don't think that he is um, trying to, you know, as I said, I don't think that he's intentionally trying to put women forward. I think what Paul is doing is trying to put the gospel forward. Mm. And I think what he sees is that Jesus transforms everything. Mm. And Paul grew and you know, lived in this Roman culture. And in this Roman culture, women were regarded as properties under the authority of men. And women were regarded, you know, husbands literally had the power and life of death over the people in their household. Now, some, some used that authority. Most probably did not use that authority. But legally, that was their authority. And what Paul does, I mean, we just miss this so much as Christians because we are so, we don't understand the first century church at all. And what we don't understand is that even the fact that women and slaves and children met together with the men in the room to all learn together, this was radical Mm -hmm. Um, because this wasn't something, I mean, we're at the point, yes, sometimes women did go eat with men and they would sit usually at separate tables, reclining tables. And then, um, you know, but it was often either the wives or certain women that went and ate. I mean, this was a very segregated society in that sense, in that way. Mm -hmm. And yet here we have all of these, this house church, everyone's in the room, high-class citizens, low-class citizens, children, slaves, women. And so even just doing that is dramatically different. And then if we think about what Paul does in Ephesians, which is, you know, the evangelical favorite, and it's actually been for a long time, you know, keep women in their place passage. Um, But even Paul starting off that passage, not only with submit to one another as to the Lord, but then he turns first to women. We, We just completely miss this. He doesn't, you know, men are the head of the household and they are the ones who are in charge. And usually you teach it to men and they filter it down to everybody else. And instead of doing that, he turns first to wives. And he says, look, wives, yes, we live in the Roman world. You are to submit to your husbands. That's the law of the land. But you don't do it for the reason in this context. You do it to the Lord. You submit to the Lord. And husbands are also called to submit to your two wives because this in the Lord, this is what we do. We submit to each other. And husbands, instead of having authority of life and death over your wives, you are supposed to give up your lives for your wives. And I mean, it was just, it completely transforms that. And it is so ironic that we use this passage to enforce female subordination. Mm. When the whole point is that Jesus, the world of Jesus, you know, turns our cultural understandings upside down and says, all people, you know, are, are equal here. So if that's a little bit, I mean, I think Paul just just understanding that context that Paul is in and what he's trying to do, which is the gospel goes forward and Jesus uses everyone to put the gospel forward. It is mm-hmm. not limited by gender. And so we're not going to limit it by gender here either. Really love that explanation. Beth, thank you for that. If I'm reading you correctly, you say that there are times in the New Testament where it seems like Paul is reiterating Aristotle's understanding yeah. of gender or a Roman understanding. But you say mm-hmm. we shouldn't be reading Paul in that light in that, in fact, preceding uh, yes. his, his um, iteration of the rule, 
he seems to contradict it, almost mocking yep. the hierarchy. Can you yep. say more about that? Yes. So this is a strategy, as we know, mm-hmm. Paul is Paul's learned, a learned person. Um, he is trained in Roman rhetorical strategies, this classical rhetorical strategies, um, which means how to speak and how to make a persuasive argument. And if Paul's anything, he's persuasive. He also speaks in a very different tone than other people that we read in the Bible, other authors of the text. You know, we can we can tell the Pauline tone because or the people who are also in, you know, working with Paul. And, and one of the mistakes we make, too, is we think about these texts as being single author because that's what we think about today. But really, there are communities, you know, collaborative. There's a lot of collaborative work going on here. We get images of this because Paul tells us he's not writing a lot of this stuff. He's talking with other people and then producing it that way. So we, we have to just rethink about how the Bible was created and how we got to it. And one of the practices that we find is that the Bible often uses the rhetorical strategies of the world in which those people are living. Um, we can think about Genesis and the poetry that it is. I mean, it's a rhetorical strategy that is used to help people understand something that's incomprehensible and to understand how they are set apart from the people around them. Um, and so it's a rhetorical strategy. Paul uses the same type of rhetorical strategies. And one of the ones that uh, Roman orators were trained in was what is often called the, you know, the quotation strategy, or that's a simplified version of it. But essentially where they take the arguments that is that they want to refute and they state it and then they refute it. Now, Jesus does this too. <laughs> you know, he says, you have totally. heard, mm-hmm. but I'm going to tell you this. Yeah. Um, so Paul sets up this method. He says, you know, this is what's going on. But is that what we're really supposed to do? You know, he uses these quotations and to talk about, yeah, you know, he's, you know, food is good for the body and the body for food. But then he goes on, but is this what... Is taking the the Eucharist communion, is it all about the food and body? No, this is a symbolic. I mean, well, I'm Baptist, you know. You're Baptist. But it is a spiritually <laughs> significant, however you want to do it. Um, you know, it is, uh, it, and of course, it becomes it becomes our first sacrament. But all Christians, no matter how low church you are, we regard this as a sacrament. It's coming together for the, for the meal. So Paul uses this strategy. And he does this in Romans uh, in 14, in wh- I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, in which he is talking about, you know, he's he's talking about order and worship. I mean, it just I just can't see this passage any other way. I know that there are some biblical scholars who are still like, you know, we just think those words were inserted. And I'm like, well, that that's fine, too, because what we know is that these aren't Paul's words. Mm. They are the Roman, they're the Roman context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also see, you know, the passage flows really easily when you understand that what Paul is doing, you know, he's talking about order and worship, how we're all supposed to be order and worship. And then he says, and, you know, women are to be silent in worship. They're not ever supposed to talk. And then after that, he says, what? Yeah. You know, did the word of God originate with you? I, I, this is, he's like, yes, of course, women can talk in worship. That's not at all what I'm saying. Everybody needs to be trained. Everybody needs to, um, you know, to have some sort of idea of what's going on. You know, there's an order to this all. But of course, women can speak in church. Mm. Um, And this is even more apparent when we look at those words, women be silent, ask your husbands at home. And they are almost word for word from 
Greco-Roman sources. Wow. You know, this is something that we know was out there. And Lucy Pepia just does a beautiful job with this in her Women in Corinth, um, where she says, you know, it is so clear that Paul is refuting practices that the Corinthian men are bringing into the church. And Paul is walking through them one by one and mm-hmm. saying, in the world of Jesus, we don't do this. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, yes. Uh, I, Beth, I wept when I first read it like that. Like, what? Did the word of God originate with you? I, yeah. I, can, I, I feel like I can hear Paul saying that. Yes. Yeah, we do. And we can also, you know, we think about, we know that Phoebe read Romans. And I wonder if there were other, you know, surely there were other female voices who read these texts to audiences. And you just think about a woman reading that text out. I mean, anyway. Yeah. Let's let's get let's jump to medieval times. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about Marjorie Kemp and and why she's important to our story. So Marjorie, I've been writing on Marjorie Kemp since I was an undergraduate. In fact, the paper that I wrote that got me into graduate school was a comparison of Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich, who is another uh, 15th century mystic. They're very different people, but they are also doing very similar things, although in different ways. And uh, who Marjorie Kemp is, I mean, she's actually really a pretty ordinary woman. She's a little wealthier than other people around. Her father's the mayor of a town in the eastern part of England, East Anglia. Um, it's, it's King's Lynn. It was called Bishop's Lynn or Lynn at the time. But anyway, you can still go there today and go wander around King's Lynn. It's a, it's a lovely place. Um, but Marjorie Kemp was born there in the aftermath of the plague, which you know was the middle of the 14th century. So she's born later in 1373, I think. Um, and she has a pretty ordinary life. She gets married to somebody who she considers to be beneath her, which is kind of an interesting part Mm -hmm, of the story mm -hmm. because she always has this, she considers that her husband is kind of underneath her. She also hangs on to all of her own wealth. Uh, Marjorie controls the pocketbook in the family, um, which a lot of my students are always like, what? Women were in charge of the money? And it's like, yeah, actually, you know, they could. Um, She also is a businesswoman. She tries to do some businesses and she tells us that she tries to do these things because she wants to wear um, fancy clothes to church. And her husband is always against her starting these businesses, but she doesn't really care what he thinks. Um, she does them anyway. And she fails. She talks about this. She's also the mother of 14 children, um, <laughs> which, you know, which actually played very little role in her text. We only really see her talk about two of her children. One of them is the child at the very beginning that she gives birth to that leads her to what seems to be a pretty severe postpartum depression. And then the other one is her son, who, um, you know, essentially she tells us that he lives a life of sin and dies and he deserved it. <laughs> you know, she kind of tells us that at the end. She was like, you know, he brought them on this on himself. Um, so she's, a, it, we, if we think about constructions of motherhood, Marjorie is great. Um, but what Marjorie Kemp, the reason that I love her so much, you know, I, I always reiterate to my students, I, I don't think I would really want to be Marjorie Kemp's friend. She is, um, she's very dramatic. And I imagine that being her friend would, well, she doesn't have very many friends. And I, it's easy to understand why, because I think she's a difficult person to be around. Uh, but at the same time, Marjorie Kemp is an ordinary woman who feels called by God. 
And part of the reasons that she has to be so dramatic and is because she lives in a world where it is hard for an ordinary woman who feels called by God to live out that calling. And so Marjorie Kemp's book is a story of an ordinary woman trying to live out her calling to God in whatever way that she can. And she is, the strategies that she uses are, are pretty brilliant. Um, and one of the things, you know, that scholars have talked about a lot, on the one hand, we see Marjorie Kemp um, resisting what it is a woman is supposed to be. Um, in fact, one of the places where she's arrested, there are women and men in the crowd yell at her. They say, why don't you go home and, you know, and, and fix your husband's trousers and, you know, things like that and telling her that she needs to go back to her place. And then, but Marjorie, you know, never does this. And in fact, what she continues doing is she essentially is a street preacher. She preaches everywhere. And when she gets called on this practice, she says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not a priest. You know, I'm not trying to get ordained. I'm just trying to tell people the good news. Mm. And so the, you know, they're like, well, you're right. You're not trying to be ordained. You're not trying to go into a pulpit. So we we can't do anything to you. I mean, so she's really brilliant and she works this patriarchal structure um, where she manages to stay underneath. And in fact, one of my favorite parts in the book that I didn't put in my book and I kind of wish I had now, but there's this conversation that Marjorie has with Paul, with St. Paul, where Marjorie's so upset after she's been arrested and been accused, you know, of being a heretic because she's a street preacher. And Jesus says, you know, Marjorie, I'm going to send you somebody to, to tell you he's sorry. And, St. Paul comes to Marjorie in this vision and says, I'm really sorry that my words have caused you this much problem. And he says, you know, this is going to give you a special place in heaven because you have persevered. I mean, it's this amazing little excerpt thing. And he doesn't apologize for saying the words. Mm. He apologizes Mm -hmm. for the harm. So what this means is that she's still not a heretic because she's not saying don't, you know, fall, you know, to throw Paul out the window or that I have, that she has, God has given her a new interpretation of Paul. What she's saying is that Paul understands the challenges his words have created for women who feel called to serve and that he's going to make sure they get a special place in heaven because of the problem. So this is really, so, you know, she's this, she conforms to patriarchy while at the same time resisting it. And in doing so, she lives out her calling. And that's why I think she's important to this story, um, because she shows us how women have always felt called beyond what the patriarchal limits of the church allow them. And they don't feel like this is calling them. And they also feel like maybe scripture has not been interpreted the way um, that it should, because mm-hmm. it contradicts the way God calls women. Yes. And so we even see this with Marjorie Kemp, you know, even this, four, you know, late 14, she dies um, in, in the 15th century. Um, the last words we hear from her in the 1430s. Anyway, but she, we see this woman who knows what women are being taught, but also feels like there's more to the story. So... Yes, thank you. Thank you. I, I, real quick. Yeah. That, tell us how she hangs on to herself and, and speaks back to the Archbishop. Oh, yeah. Of York when, he calls her, when he calls her a wicked woman. 
Yeah, no, this is a lovely story. And and it's really quite amazing, too, because it shows us how clever Marjorie is, um, because this is a time when there's a heresy in England called Lollardy. It stems from John Wycliffe. There's a lot of nuance to this, but essentially, you know, one of the problems um, is peop- one of the things John Wycliffe really got in trouble for um, is saying that the clergy should not have this special position, that they weren't really any more special than anyone else, especially in regards to the property that had been given to the church. I mean, if you kind of, this, there's an economic thing going on behind John Wycliffe here, where he's saying, you know, essentially they don't deserve this property that they have and how much wealth they have. And one of the things that Wycliffe followers also did is they started uh, producing a vernacular translation of the Bible. Now, it's not the only vernacular translation of the Bible out there. There's actually other vernacular mm-hmm. translations. Um, but this one, be, you know, becomes very, very famous and um, begins to be used by a whole lot of people. So Marjorie Kemp, by preaching and preaching scripture, it is making her and by resisting clerical authority, Marjorie is often identified as a lawlord, as a heretic. So she, you know, this is the problem with her. And one of these times that she's arrested, she's brought before the Archbishop of York. And in the England English ecclesiastical structure, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York are the two most important ecclesiastical figures who report essentially straight to Rome. Um, so very, very important person. Archbishop of Canterbury is a lot more important than the Archbishop of York, but nonetheless. Um, so she gets called before the court of the Archbishop of York. And I mean, the dialogue between them is amazing because she he essentially he says, you are a wicked woman. I hear all these things that you're doing. And she looks at him. And she says, no, I'm not a wicked woman, but I hear you're a wicked man. And if you don't repent, then it's going to be bad for your soul. I mean, this is an amazing thing. The reason she gets away with it is because she has a reputation of a holy woman as this woman religious and because she's not actually doing anything heretical. And so the Archbishop of York just doesn't really know what to do with her. And, uh, you know, and part of it, you know, she does have these political, her husband, her father is the mayor of Kingsland. So we know that she does have some ties that probably help her out a little bit. But at the end of the day, what happens is the Archbishop of York essentially says, you can go keep doing what you're doing. I mean, he tells her not to preach. She says, I'm not preaching. He says, well, stop talking about God on the streets. Don't do it in my diocese. And she says, no, um, God told me to do this and I'm going to keep doing it. And then his next response is, somebody, please come take this woman away from me. And he pays a guy to take Marjorie away from And then she goes and rejoices with her friends. They have a party because she, God rescued her from this man who she resisted in every instant. You know, everything he told her to do, she said no. Mm-hmm. And she gets, so I mean, it's this amazing story uh, that a lot of people, if nothing else, I hope the Making a Biblical Woman has brought Marjorie Kent back into church history. Yes, thank you. Some evangelicals have an image of Mary and Martha that seems to differ pretty greatly from the medieval one. So what happens to Mary and Martha? Who were they? How are they known in medieval times? And then what happened to them? Yes, this is one of the things that really has been lost with evangelicals because a lot of the evangelical movement in the 19th century has a significant anti-Catholic strain. And this is, you know, anything that even that even seemed Catholic to many folk was completely rejected. And this included 
a lot of the church traditions and stories about women. And what we find is that in early Christianity, there are very powerful stories about women that were told for a thousand years to women and men in the church. And they would they would hear these stories. I mean, we can even think about, you know, the story of Mary and Martha today, Mary and Martha of Bethany, um, the sisters of Bethany. And the way the story is told for us today is that they are essentially they are the housekeepers for Jesus that Jesus and his disciples sort of come and crash at their house when they need good food and they need, you know, they need to be taken care of. They need somebody to do their laundry. And this is what Mary and Martha do for them. And the reason that Martha, you know, is scolded by the reason Mary is scolded by Martha is because she's not helping Martha do all of these domestic tasks. Um, And that's sort of the version we think. And this version is used to reinforce why women Mm. are called to the home. I mean, that's the way that it's used. Well, let's think about in the medieval world, if we women are hearing these stories similar to that, like Mary and Martha, except for instead of them being these domestic goddesses, um, Martha is a preaching dragon slayer. And, you know, what's the impact that that has? I mean, what it tells women is even if maybe they're not going to be dragon slayers, that women were preaching. And women were acknowledged as preachers and women were acknowledged as having this role in the early church and became saints in the same way as men. And both Mary and Martha actually were in the medieval world. You know, Mary of Bethany is conflated with Mary Magdalene, which there's a whole history about that. But Mary and Martha were both dragon slaying preachers. Wow. And I mean, this is just something it's so far removed yeah, we totally from our it. domesticated Mary and Martha. And it does, people are like, well, that's not true. They weren't dragon slayers. And I'm like, it, that, it doesn't matter. I was like, it's not true either that they are domestic hostesses. Right. You know, both of those are wrong. What matters is how women hear them and mm-hmm. the impact and what it tries to tell us. And in the medieval world, women heard, heard stories that women preached. In the modern world, we hear stories that women serve food. Yeah. Oh, so great. Let's let's move into the Reformation. <laughs> how did the Reformation change how we see women and almost kind of invent what we know as we, as biblical womanhood? Um, I'll I'll try to make this really fast. You know, the Reformation chapter was my second hardest chapter to write because I, as a historian. It is a very complicated thing that's going on with women during this time period. And a whole lot of it actually doesn't have to do with Reformation theology. It's Reformation theology got caught up in a world that was beginning to limit women even more. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and it's not that women in the medieval world were freer. It's just that the limits on them were different. So this is something, you know, it's not that patriarchy doesn't exist for women. It's just that it changes. And in the early modern world, one of the ways that it was changing was that the most important role for women was the role of life. And in fact, the only really recognized legitimate identity for women, legally, socially, religiously, was the role of life. And this gets tied up with Reformation theology, that women are, yes, women are spiritually equal to men. But women's highest spiritual calling is to be a wife, which legally means that they're always under the authority of men. 
Mm-hmm. And so what we see happening in the Reformation is we see this emphasis on the godly role of a woman is to be a wife, which legally, economically, socially means that she's always subordinate to men. And it is this narrative, this marriage, if I can use that, this marriage um, of a woman's role in the culture, this emphasis on her role as wife, married Reformation theology, that this is the godliest thing for a woman to do. And what we find, what we end up with is that to be a godly woman is to be under the authority of a husband. And this also explains why Paul gets a revival in the sense of what Phyllis Tribble has called the text of terror, mm-hmm. um, which are those five or six passages that talk about women being submissive and subordinate. Um, and those suddenly spike. You know, if there was a Google Analytics tool for early modern sermons, <laughs> what we would see is this straight up spike of those types of passages being used for women in sermons, as well as women being separated out in sermons to be treated differently. And in the medieval world, we don't get that. We don't get women. I mean, sometimes we do, but it's very specific sermons. And it's interesting how it's done. Um, It's not done in the same way. So if that, in a nutshell, that's what happened. Yeah, one of the starkest pictures of that to me is women sitting together in the church meeting in medieval times, kind of having this sisterhood, this culture where of, of support for one another. And then post-Reformation, they're sitting next to their husbands right. mm. under that authority. Yes. And, uh, you know, for your listeners that want to know more about this, Catherine French has written some really, I mean, her book on the good women of the parish just really drives this point home. And I quoted her concluding paragraph in the book, you know, that she really shows this stark picture of, yes, there were women, the role of wife really was elevated. Um, You know, many women did agree more with Reformation theology, but at the same time, women lost this parish community. They lost these support structures of other women. And the impact of this is something that we cannot neglect. Mm-hmm. So this was something I found interesting. The TNIV uses gender-inclusive language, and the ESV effectively writes women out of the Bible. But this is a recent phenomenon relative to like medieval churches and even earlier mm-hmm. than that, when the Bible, when they were translating the Bible in a gender-inclusive way. So can you speak to why gender-inclusive language in the Bible isn't a uh, result of postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, in fact, if you think about the beginning of my academic journey that brought me to the making of biblical womanhood, it starts with gender inclusive language because one of the very first papers, in fact, the very first, no, the second paper that I ever gave at an academic conference was on gender inclusive language in medieval sermon Bible translations. And this was, and it was at the same time that the debate was going over the TNIV, that the World Magazine was publicizing, you know, had all of those articles where it's talking about, you know, feminism infiltrating the church through this gender inclusive Bible. And it was just so funny to me because what I had been reading are 15th century sermons where priests routinely used gender inclusive language and inserted it into biblical passages. You know, they, they have the Latin and then they translate it for their audience. And when they would translate it, they would use gender inclusive texts. Um, oh, they would translate it gender inclusively, you know, instead of, you know, anyway, 
uh, all sorts of examples that I can give you. In fact, it's really hard to read a 15th century English sermon and not come across an example of this. Um, I've tried it and I, I just keep finding them. So uh, this was a very common practice in the medieval world, which means that it's not a product of feminism. Now, feminism in the 1960s did make us more aware of the impact of language that excludes women. And this is a practice that really goes back to the 17th century. We can trace the evolution of the English language and it begins to become more androcentric. Um, where it, you know, English is a really bad language for inclusivity. It just is. And there's not a really good word, you know, the word man began to be used as the word human. And while on the one hand, the word man is supposed to be inclusive and supposed to be talking to both men and women, um, a lot of scholars have analyzed the way the word man is used, and it's mostly not. It mostly actually is referencing only men. And that's one of the reasons why then they have to put in separate subsects that say, and then when we talk about women, we have to do this because men is supposed to include women, but it doesn't really. Women are always other. So we see this emphasis though, but men are writing texts, you know, texts are written by men for men about men. This is what happens with early modern English. And this influences the translation of early modern English Bibles. Um, we see this, you know, gender, this androcentric perspective that begins to infiltrate. And it really picks up in the 19th century when at the time when laws against women are really hardening, where when women get married, they lose their property to their husband. Um, you know, they no longer have any control over their property or their wealth. And so it's not surprising at all that women are completely shut out of language at this point. And it's also no surprise that this is when the first um, suffrage movement begins mm -hmm. because women are so shut out that they realize the laws are going to have to change in order for them to begin to have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, and this hardening of language is a part of this in the 19th century. And what we ended up with are Bibles that are written to men. Mm. instead of considering women as well. And the feminism in the 1960s helped wake us up a little bit to this. You know, there was a lot of studies on what happens, you know, what happens to little girls when they hear sermons that talk only about men. What happens is they don't listen because they don't hear themselves in the stories. What happens when all the stories are about men? Little girls don't listen mm -hmm. because they're not hearing themselves in the stories. Um, and so Feminism helped wake us up to this. And so while there is sort of, you know, we were woken up to the impact of gender inclusive language, but the use of gender inclusive language is not a product of feminism, uh, nor is it really an addition or a change to biblical text because Greek was much better at being gender inclusive than English is. And so it's mostly actually just correctly translating passages totally. that include both women and men. And re-putting that back in the Bible where English, the androcentric emphasis of the English took it out. So when the ESV is translated in it and they add, they, they exclude women again, would you say they're, they are then adding something to the text? They're adding something oh, totally. that wasn't there? Totally. They are. Now, every Bible translation does this to a certain extent. Um, you know, most Bible translations today, most English Bible translations are 90, 95% the same. The things that change are the things that really emphasize the priorities of the translators. And so this is true of every translation. 
So on the one hand, I don't know if the ESV is doing anything terribly different than everyone else. The problem is, is that the reason the ESV is doing it is to exclude women and to emphasize complementarianism as being the divine order. So they're rewriting biblical text to make it look like they're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and they're intentionally doing it. That's also the other thing is that they actually say that the ESB is unapologetically complementarian. Yeah. And, um, and so those are the things that really raise red flags is they're not only their perspective, but the intentionality of their perspective um, with the goal of pushing women out of ministry and pushing women into the home under the authority of their husbands. Beth, you, you talk about how this construct of biblical womanhood is kind of built up by the cult of domesticity. Yeah. How did the industrial revolution kind of invent <laughs> the cult of domesticity? Oh, you know, this is, this is another, I'm, I'm a social historian, um, which means that I'm very interested in ordinary people as well as how economic structures influence the lives of ordinary people. And, you know, the Americans don't like to hear this because we're all about, we have our own agency, you know, our stories about we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, but some people have longer bootstraps than other people. <laughs> and some people just can't pull themselves up as high, not because they're not trying, but because of structures that are limiting them. Okay. And so what we, what the happened with the industrial revolution is that it began to separate work paid work from women's work. And this is really, this is a huge marker. It's, it's really, you know, women don't really change what they're doing. It's just that women usually don't receive recognition for what they're doing. And this with the industrial, you know, and so in the medieval world, um, women actually did have, I don't want to say economic freedom, but there, they were able to run their own businesses. There were often, there was work that was paid work that was characterized as specifically female. Um, and a lot of this work was like, you know, brewing, making beer, doing food, all of those sort of things. They were still lower paid, lower wages. Um, but with the industrial revolution, what happened is that a lot of those types of services moved outside the home. And women got, and you know, as factories were built and, and suddenly the industrial Re revolution creates a problem we haven't had before and that's childcare. Um, because when everyone's kind of working around the home and in the home, childcare is not really a problem. When you have multi-generational families in a home, childcare is not as much of an issue. But when you move school and you move work outside the home, then it sort of becomes like logistically like, well, how do I get my kids there where they're supposed to be? How do I go work and leave kids at home or not? I mean, it suddenly logistically creates these challenges. And so historically, it is so fascinating that at the same time that these logistical challenges are created, that we begin to see narratives that emphasize that women's job really isn't in the workplace anyway. Mm. Um, women's job is really in the home because somebody needs to take care of those kids. Um, and then all of these narratives come that it's actually better for women because women's bodies aren't able to do these things. And it's really hard. And it was hard on them to be on their feet 15 hours a day in a factory when they were pregnant. But the reason women had to do that is because, first of all, there was no protection for them. Um, if they wanted to keep their job, they had to keep their job that way. And also because there was an un well, it was it became a spoken thing that women don't deserve to get paid as much as men because women are intellectually inferior to mm. men. 
women can't do the work of men. So therefore we pay them lower. And not only do we pay them lower, but we, and I emphasize this, I actually quote, I can't remember his name. I'll quote one of the guys in this book who says this, but essentially if we pay them less, it will encourage them to not work outside the home. And so what we see is, and this is part of what the cult of domesticity is, that a woman's place is in the home and family. And those are her priorities. And those are the priorities not only created for her by culture, but also ordained by God. Mm. Yeah, I, this, I mean, this is where like, I, I feel like the plight of the modern woman really comes in and like, we like we have, yes. we have to be and do everything, you know, and yeah. I, I just see how that came in in the industrial revolution where they no longer own the means of production, but right. yet they're expected to be this goddess at home, at home, yeah. like you, you can't win. No, you cannot win. And, um, and we see where it got us, you know, how it got us today and the separation of work and, and creating like, you know, people today talk about how hard it is for a woman to work outside the home. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's because the structures of our businesses today are built for men and they are built for men who don't take into account family. And, and so the reason that it's hard for women to work is because we have built a workplace that excludes women. Mm-hmm. And so I, one of the things of COVID is I think it has really brought totally. this to the forefront that um, women can be very effective workers with different, you know, from different environments and doing different, you know, that we need to accommodate and we need to take family into account when we think about work. Absolutely. So the Industrial Revolution shaped how we understood biblical womanhood, but this was really surprising to me. And I think you too, um, that yeah. Arian, that Arianism, this heresy that the father created the son and isn't co-substantial right. with him, and an inerrancy as well, the idea that the Bible isn't without any errors. Both of these ideas yes. sort of cemented biblical womanhood as, yeah. as a concept. So heresy and then a um, specific campaign to read the Bible in right. a new way. Um, exactly. Can you speak to that? Unpack that for yeah. us so that we, we can see these kind of um, outside influences changing how we see women specifically. You know, some people have asked me, they're like, well, where do you get the mo- most pushback in the text? And I'm like, I don't know. That's a hard question because um, I get pushback in all sorts of areas from the tech. It depends. It depends on who's pushing back. But one of the places that I have gotten pretty consistent pushback is my discussion of Arianism and my characterization of what we call the eternal subordination of the sun as heresy. And so it's been, it's really fascinating that people who criticize this are people who are in those groups that most support it. So, you know, that also tells me something. Um, But what we see happening in the 20th century um, is, you know, sort of we think about the culmination of this time where women you know, the, the lines have been drawn that make it really hard for women to be in workspaces and women to get education unless they give up family and marriage. And so this is why we end up with all these single school teachers and everything, because that's the only, that's, if they want to do this, that's the path to do it. So we have these hard gender lines that are drawn. We also have, and we have people accepting that these gender lines come from the Bible, that this is, you know, that a woman's place is the home and a woman's place is marriage and family. So people are accepting that. We also have in the late 19th century really coming with Darwin 
And, you know, Darwin sort of just totally shook up the evangelical world um, because it made them rethink um, maybe creation. And a lot of people reacted very strongly to that. There were a lot of scholars who kind of took it a little bit too far, um, you know, this influence from uh, mm-hmm. from some folk in Germany. And essentially they were like, oh, well, let's, you know, it's sort of like I'm minimizing this. They were very good scholars. But I think about it like with graduate students, when you introduce them to the concept of deconstruction and suddenly they're like deconstructing everything. You know, sure. like nothing has meaning anymore. Nothing is, you know, concrete. So we kind of see that happening with the Bible. It's like no, all of this was made up. Nothing has any meaning. It's only people trying to create meaning for themselves. And so a lot of Christians begin to push back on that. Right. Fully so. But some Christians begin to push back so hard that they begin to argue almost exactly the opposite, Mm. that the Bible in every form is literally true. And this pushback came without really taking historical context into account, without even really taking the Bible translation history into account. It said the Bible you have in front of you is literally every true inerrancy. Inerrancy is not about believing the Bible. Inerrancy is about believing a very literal interpretation of the Bible that totally. was propagated by a group of men coming out of Princeton Theological Seminary in the early 20th century. Um, that's what inerrancy is. And inerrancy had begun to become equated, though, with if you believe the Bible, you are an inerrantist. And people who don't believe the Bible, well, people who aren't inerrantists, they don't believe the Bible, which is why I get you know, people ask me, they're like, are you an inerrantist? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not going to answer that question because it is going to make you think something that isn't actually what that word means. What that totally. word means is, do I believe a particular translation, a particular understanding of the Bible that came out of this political context, this religious sort of infighting in the early 20th century? The same thing with Arianism. Arianism is a very old heresy in the church. Arianism also can really have two meanings. It can be a very specific meaning, which talks about what happened with the Council of Nicaea with Arius, priest who said, you know, there was a time when the sun was not. That was his jingle. I always talk about with students that, you know, he had the first sort of, you know, Kellogg serial jingle. Um, There was a time when the sun was not, that Jesus was a created being. And the Council of Nicaea says, no, that undermines everything about Christianity. It undermines everything that we've been taught. In order for salvation to work, Jesus is God. Jesus is always God. That's what we've always been taught. So they condemn Arianism as heretical. Well, throughout history, Arianism, it's a very attractive idea to humans. We always try to make God in our own image. Arianism makes God in our own image. And so we have different variations of it throughout time. You know, sometimes it is that Jesus is a created being. We can think about other sort of offshoots of Christianity where this is taught, you know, that Jesus is a created being. That's all under the umbrella of Arianism. We can also have times where people say, well, Jesus is God, but he's different than God the Father. You know, they they aren't their essence yet. You know, they try to get real clever with how the division of it is. But essentially what they argue is that Jesus is um, is a different God than God the Father. They have different roles. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened in the 20th century, is we, people who supported the women and men are created with gender roles that are separate, but equal, which also should have other warning flags to us, um, that women are sure. created with separate but equal roles, that the reason that we know this is divinely ordained is because it reflects 
the roles of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That they are equal, but have separate roles. The problem is, is that this is saying that Jesus is not the same substance as God the Father. And so it is big blanket Arianism, heresy that has always been condemned because it says that Jesus is is not the same as God the Father, which is what the Council of Nicaea condemned and said anyone who believes this should be, you know, essentially should be anathemized. They should be thrown out of the church because this isn't Christian. Wow. So So there was such a commitment to patriarchy that um, they would even commit a heresy in order to do it. Yes, Um, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then completely shift how they even understand the Bible too. Um, Old Princeton that that kind of made inerrancy a thing is now Westminster, which isn't far from Philadelphia. So we still have... (laughs) that sort of influence right now. Like we yeah. still, that's still a thing there right now in that school in yeah. Aransi. It shifted. Yeah. It shifted out of Princeton, um, which became a very different animal. Totally. Uh, later on. But yeah, no, I mean, and, and Aransi just won't go away because people don't understand what, and they think they're asking, do you believe in the Bible? And what they're really asking is, do you believe this particular interpretation of the Bible that developed from this particular context totally. in the early 20th century? Absolutely. We just have a few more questions, but I, 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 where, where do you see this movement going next? How long, how long will it be before complementarianism is extinct? Is that, is that something we can hope for? Yeah. So, okay. So I have two answers for that. On um, the first answer, I see I'm, I have a lot of hope. Um, what I see happening is I I don't know if that hope's going to be realized within the next 10, 15, 20 years. But what I see happening is I see women and men in complementarian spaces beginning to wake up. And they're often not sure what they're going to do with this yet, but they realize that what they have been taught may not be a part of the gospel. And they're beginning to realize the implications of these teachings about women and how women internalize these teachings. And that's what, you know, even people in soft complementarian churches, you know, I think what they need to understand is that their daughters are hearing things that say there's something about them that makes them less than men. And they need to think about how women internalize that. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it can be very dangerous. So I think people are starting to wake up. And so what I think we're going to see happening is in these churches where people are waking up, either either they're going to start leaving, which I don't really know if most people will leave because there's so many reasons that you stay in these types of movements. But what I think you're going to start seeing is people not putting up with the status quo anymore. And so we're going to see, you know, so that's what I, I think. I think we are at a breaking point. So the churches um, now, could change even. Yeah, I think there may be some changes now. I don't know. My husband says it's just easier to start a new church than to change a church culture. He is probably right about that. I think maybe, so there may be some shifting where some of these really hardcore churches are going to start getting smaller and smaller and smaller and people, you know, branch are going to branch off from them with new, with a broader understanding of what women and men can do in the church. So I think, I think we're going to see an inward awakening Mm. and we already are that is going to start having an impact um, on our churches. I'm not exactly sure what effect that's going to take. So that's my hope. And that's what I see. And I'm so encouraged by that. 
Um, as a historian, though, patriarchy is part of history. Mm-hmm. We have been trying to get rid of this thing. Mm-hmm. Every century, people are trying to get rid of this thing, just like we keep trying to get rid of racism. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that they are so much part of human DNA that we define ourselves by how we are better than someone else mm-hmm. and hierarchy. We define our, you know, that's the way we define ourselves. So is it ever going to go away? I don't think it is, but I think the Christian church needs to, if we're going to make a difference in the world, we need to make a difference in this area. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that instead of being the voice of opposition, the church needs to be pushing towards, you know, this idea of the image of God. We are all created in there. Absolutely. So there's my thoughts. Amen. So what are, where can we find you Beth in that? What are you working on next? And this is our final Um, question. So um, I am, you know, I didn't really know if I ever wanted to do anything like this again. That was honestly, my honest thought was I'm going to drop this and, and then run back to academia where, you know, and have a hundred people read my next book. That was my initial thought. But again, I still have that same thing that drove me to write the making of biblical womanhood. It's that there is scholarship that academics know that could change the church for the better. And so um, I have started working on a project that follows some of these same lines as what you saw. It's not really a follow-up to the making of biblical womanhood. It's sort of an expansion of this idea of what, by reminding the modern church about our medieval past, how it can help us for the better. And so that's what I sort of began began working on. It's going to pick up women, but it's not going to only pick up women. That's awesome. That's awesome. Ah, that's so great. Okay, we're going to be, we, we're, gonna, we're part of that with you, our, our circle of hope. We're, we're yeah. always talking about um, the medieval church characters that inspire us, many of them women. Oh, yeah. So thank, thank you, Beth. And we'll be on the lookout for your next book. And the, just in closing, the the um, the scripture that keeps coming to mind is about you know not conforming to the pattern of this world, but being transformed, transformed. by the renewing of our minds. So th- thank you for inspiring us not to just kind of swallow yes. um, what what the world has given us and and even what the church has conformed to, but to actually look to Jesus mm-hmm. for. Yes. For the understanding of of who we are, thanks. That's so great. Yeah, and I, I'm very glad. I know you know people keep reminding me. They're like, Beth, you wrote this book for men too, and I'm like, I'm so glad men are reading it. And help. but if you really get down to me, honestly, I wrote this book for women. Awesome. I wrote it, you know, I wrote it, and I wrote it for women who feel called by God to let them know that they are called by God. Excellent. And so I'm really glad, Rachel, that you have been, you know, freed by it because in some ways you are my target audience. Wonderful. I am honored and grateful. Thank you. This last segment is uh, where we share what has been nourishing our souls. 
spiritual show and tell. Um, you know, we, we want to give the gifts that we have received from God and share them freely. We hope that it nourishes you too. So pastors, what has been nourishing you this past week? My wife, for our anniversary in July, got me a subscription to Poetry Magazine from the Poetry Foundation. This is a, an actual poetry magazine. You might be able to hear it on my microphone. I'm flipping the pages. Oh, it's colorful. Yeah, the art's pretty cool, too. And there's art inside as well. I want to read you a poem from Fritz Ward that is in the September edition. It's called Love Letter from Inside Fatherhood. Inside the trap... I spend weeks remodeling the haven you'll haunt. Not for the joy of it, but for the wonder that keeps snapping my neck. Come December, there's a morning when the sun slathers the bare trees in saffron, and I hold you more delicately than I've ever held myself. See how we've risen before the moon has fallen? See how we've nested and itched? The boringness of it all has infected us with wonder with want, with why. And yet all of it, the blood vocabulary, the fibroid angel, the cries echoing from birth and back, all of it just beyond our understanding, our standing. But the truth I don't want to tell you is that you matter more, then less, then more. And all of this is breakable and already broken. Oh my gosh. Can you please send that to me? Yeah, and I'll put it in the show notes. It's linked on the Poetry Foundation website. What a good gift your wife gave you. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure. What else? My cellmates around Temple last night were reminding me of the wisdom of Sabbath in, in our exploration of the scripture. We were looking at Hebrews 4, and it's talking about like God calling people into rest that is for today. <laughs> and um, we were all admitting how difficult it is to actually take a Sabbath. And the, this is an idea in the Bible um, about like an, an, an intentional time that's kind of setting aside an intentional time every week to like um, not work or produce, but to just kind of receive receive the goodness of your life. And um, we were we were sharing how difficult that is to actually stop doing stuff. You know, they're busy college students. I'm a pastor. And I was realizing how I didn't, I gave up my normal Sabbath rhythm this past Saturday because I was preparing for our first morning Sunday meeting, which I enjoyed so much. It was wonderful, but I was tired in a different way afterward. And I, and I realized as I was sitting there with them in community in this discussion that, oh, it's probably related to like not doing my Sabbath rhythm, that, that tiredness I felt afterwards. So I, I'm newly inspired to like actually try and maintain those boundaries in my life so that I, that I can rest um, in, a, in a fuller way. 
I'm with Ben on the poetry uh, on the poetry line this week because yes, <laughs> <laughs> you've waited so long. October 4th, St. Francis Day just happened on Monday, and on Sunday, we celebrated it at the Sunday meeting. And for the first time in my life, in honor of this special day, we changed some things up at the Sunday meeting, and I gave a talk using a psalm only for the first time in 11 years. So that's, that's this first time it's ever happened. Wow. That, 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 that was the only Bible reference. Um, and I only got into, like... Babylonian captivity once in the talk. So it was really great. <laughs> um, but I was reading Robert Alter's beautiful translation of the Hebrew Bible and the section on the Psalms. I recommend it to you. We'll get that in the show notes for you. You should totally buy it. It's, it's, it's a good Christmas gift. Um, which, by the way, that's coming up. Um, and I was doing... I actually did some translation of this, and I learned that translating a psalm is harder than translating like Paul, because you're supposed to make the poem make sense still. It's supposed to be a poem still. It's supposed to be a mm. song still. And I'm going to read you the psalm in a second. It's short. Don't worry. But there was a line that really moved me. In 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 the Hebrew, it basically says, "Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim." But the second line of the psalm says, "How majestic your name in all the earth." And in the Hebrew, there's alliteration, which means that there's two words that start with the same letter. And the word for um, the word for our God is, or the first one, Lord, is Adonai, and then the second one is Adir. And so Robert Alter said, "Hey, look, A D A D and Adir and for majestic and Adonai for uh, Lord alliterate." I want to preserve the alliteration. And so he said, Lord, our master, how majestic your name in all the earth. I didn't like master that much because it kind of relates to slavery and that's where my mind went. So I said, why don't I say maker? That connects. And that, that like, I can take that liberty here because we're doing poetry. We're not doing a direct translation. So like, that was exciting for me to make a creative decision about how to, how to interpret the psalm um, and then even allow it to come into our moment too. So let me read you this Psalm 8, which is beautiful for St. Francis. Lord, our maker, how majestic your name in all the earth, whose splendor was told over the heavens. From the mouth of babes and sucklings, you founded strength on account of your foes to put an end to enemy and avenger. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you fixed firm, what is a human being that you should note them and a mortal that you pay them heed? And you make them less, a little less than the gods with glory and grandeur. You crown them. You make them rule over the work of your hands. All things you set under their feet, sheep and oxen all together, and also the beasts of, the, of, the, of their field, birds of the heavens and fish of the sea who moves on the paths of the sea. Lord, our maker, how majestic your name in all the earth. That line envelops the psalm. Same line as the beginning and the end. So there's your uh, package for you. Go worship the earth. Um, and take care of it too. That's, that's, <laughs> sorry, I didn't say go worship God by taking care of the earth. <laughs> I got to redo that whole thing because I can't have go no. worship the earth in there. Worship with the earth. That's what I want to say. In Francis's song, he, uh, 
he calls all of creation to to sing with us. Hallelujah. That's beautiful, Johnny. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to take us a totally different direction here. What was nourishing my soul this week were bad jokes. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you going to do one? <laughs> uh, yes. Where does an 800-pound gorilla sleep? Oh, I always want to know the answer. Anywhere it wants. <laughs> what? Oh, thank you for laughing. Okay, wait. Here's another one. What did one... No, I'm, I'm, I'm sincerely amused. <laughs> what? I was sincerely laughing. I'll tell you why I was into these jokes, but uh, I was sincerely laughing, too. Um, what do you do when a monster sneezes? Uh, no. Get out of the way. Because <laughs> it's a big sneeze. Big, big sneeze. All right, last one. What did the chimney say to the little chimney? What did the big chimney say to the little chimney? I don't know. You smoke too much. Mm. <laughs> okay. Not like the first two. All right. I should have stopped after the you, first You two. nailed it on the first two. <laughs> I was... So I guess what nourished my soul was laughter and um, playfulness with a child. Um, our friends, Indiana and her father, Iboro, were over on Friday night and um, and my friend Maria. And we were hanging out and I don't remember what got us started on jokes, but Indiana is um, four and... Uh, it, I, I, I was basically I was teaching her how to how to tell a joke, and the first time she told one, there was like no rhythm. You know, it was just like a stream of words delivered, and I was like, no, no, come here, come here. So we had to talk through like the pause. You wait for it. You let people think about an answer, and then by the time she kept practicing, every time I gave her a different joke, which all came from this stellar book called mm -hmm. The Funniest Riddle Book Ever. <laughs> that came from my childhood. I still have it on our show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, every time she delivered one, she got better and better at it. And it was so funny. Uh, we were all enjoying uh, her process of learning how to tell a joke um, and just being together. Um, it, it reminded me how much I need this kind of spontaneous human interaction and relating. We didn't plan just this whole get together. together. Yeah. You know, it just, it just happened on Friday night out of necessity, actually. Um, and that really nurtured my soul. So I, um, I share that with you and I'll put some more really good jokes in the, uh, <laughs> show notes for you. Wonderful. Yeah, where do people find the show notes, guys? You're, on the podcast app that you have, if you open up the episode, you'll see them listed under. Usually you can expand and see them. You can also see them on our SoundCloud. And if you go to our website, circleofhope.church, we'll have a blog post with them on too. Sweet. Thanks again for listening to our show. Y'all are great. I, we love connecting with you. And write us back again. Resist and Restore podcast at circleofhope.net. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Mm -hmm.